This podcast is supported by JBS International Incorporated through a grant award from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, with 0% finance with non-governmental sources. The contents are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement, by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. For more information, please visit hrsa.gov. Welcome in to another episode of Rural Roads, the R-Core podcast, where we discuss the stories, individuals, and everything else from the Rural Communities Opioid Response Program. I'm your host, Tim Rabot with JBS International, and today we're talking with Dr. Christine De Jesus, currently the founder and executive director for the nonprofit Students Recover, as well as completing a fellowship at Princeton University. Dr. De Jesus previously worked at Montclair State University, and although she may not mention it herself, she's a true expert at the identity intersection for those in recovery and those holding other marginalized identities. Her work with Students Recover captures that, and we hope the discussion today will give some insight in how ARCOR grantees can learn from the work she and her nonprofit are engaged with throughout the country. Here we go. Welcome into another episode. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Christine De Jesus. Thanks for joining, Christine. Thanks for having me. So I'm still getting used to saying founder and executive director of, of Students Recover. Can you talk a little bit about that? process, how it came to be, where the inspiration came from. Absolutely. So yes, Students Recover really is an outgrowth of the pandemic. I was working at a in at a college in New Jersey and uh, an already starting institution. And for many schools during the pandemic, they saw a drop off of students engaging in collegiate recovery services. And the institution I worked at actually was quite the opposite. We had a massive increase in, in engagement. So we had gone from about 15 students to 80 students. And what we saw is the students were far more diverse than we had traditionally already had. And we already had a pretty diverse community that we were serving. And we just saw different types of students seeking services for recovery support that we had seen in the past. And it really made me realize that collegiate recovery was really not set up for easy access for students to be able to engage in, in getting support uh, in, what, in what's traditionally known as a recovery hostile environment. And so um, Princeton University was offering this fantastic opportunity for a fellowship that was geared towards practitioners in the world, the mm-hmm. Sugar Bandit Practitioner in Residence Fellowship. And it offered an opportunity for practitioners to put forth a problem or an issue they saw in the world, and a, and a cure for that problem. Students Recover was born out of that because I really realized that by moving services to an online platform, we created so many more opportunities for engagement for different communities, whether they be rural communities, whether they be students who had um, sure. disabilities that they couldn't get to a physical location, um, even just for students who didn't want to physically being seen because they were not ready to be seen in a recovery space yet. And so Students Recover was born out of that. And the services there for students, correct? For students, post-secondary students. um, So college students, trade school students, community college students, those engaged in post-secondary education. Tied to recovery in the sense that they have to be in recovery or they could be seeking recovery? Yeah, that's a... Great question. So having worked in college mental health for almost 20 years, it, it seemed really important to me thinking about creating 
increased access, low barrier resources, that yes, it was for students in recovery from substance use disorder. But we also know that when, when folks have um, developed substance use issues, there's also so many other co-occurring issues going on. And when creating low barrier programs, we want to make it accessible to those who are considering recovery, right? So that it's maybe not always they're there yet, but they're curious, they're in that contemplation phase. And so it's for students who are in or seeking um, recovery from not only substance use, but from mental health issues as well, because we know, again, they're really tightly intertwined. And when you talk about collegiate recovery, for those listening that may not be familiar with that, could you break that down a bit? Is that just referring to individuals in recovery on college campuses, or is it something more? So collegiate recovery is a really complicated and complex thing because there's so many different ways it presents in the world. Mm -hmm. But I would say traditionally collegiate recovery, you would find most often at four-year institutions, most commonly at predominantly white institutions. And it was generally for students in recovery from substance use disorder, generally abstinence-based recovery. It has certainly expanded probably, I would say, in the last five years or so. I think we've created a more inclusive environment in terms of understanding that recovery looks different for different people and so that not every program on a college campus is abstinence-based. But when we talk about college campuses, there's a lot there's a lot of substance use that goes on. Most people don't engage in problematic substance use, but if you're someone who struggled with substance use, being on a college campus can be a fairly triggering place. And so collegiate recovery communities are really there to create a space for students who are in recovery or seeking recovery where they can function in a supportive environment where it's it's expected that people are going to support you in your recovery and in your desire to stay away from problematic substances and situations that might be triggering for you. How do you respond to, say, the administrator on a college campus that says, why do we, why do students need something like this? They can go to rehab, then they can go to meetings in the community. And if they need additional help, we have a counseling center. What's. Yeah. So those are all true, but they're not all accessible. Treatment, having worked on a college campus for so many years, treatment is not accessible to every student. Getting students into treatment is. There's so many variables, things like insurance, time availability, right? We know that college is actually a, for many students, it supports their recovery, right? Being actively engaged in their academic pursuits. And so asking them to engage in treatment oftentimes would disrupt that. And so we have to be thoughtful, right? And yes, there's meetings in the community, right? There's 12-step meetings oftentimes, students often don't see themselves in those rooms, right? They, it trends a bit older, and then Counseling Center, and that's where I work in higher ed, Counseling Center is spectacular and fantastic, but it's a once-a-week resource. And students, particularly in early recovery, need more continuous supports, more regular supports, and oftentimes more peer-based supports, right? Sitting down with a professional can be extremely helpful, but that's not the whole experience that one needs in their support of their recovery. There's far more to it than just those once-a-week sort of interventions. Yeah. And with... Students recover, the the services are the online meetings, setting up student chapters. Are there other uh, offerings currently? And then maybe a bit about what you're hoping it can turn into. 
Yeah. So Students Recover is literally like a year old. We are just approaching our one year anniversary. And so currently what we the, the two main focuses we have is mutual aid meetings. Right. So supports for students by students. Um, and those look really different. We have a, a group called Co-Creating Students Recover. It's an opportunity for students to come in and talk about what they want, what they need, and how we can develop that for them. Um, and then we have some other groups, a mindfulness-based group, a writing-based group, and we're launching more groups daily um, or maybe monthly. <laughs> and then the student, the student campus chapters, what those are, campus chapters are an opportunity to develop um, on campuses, but also across the nation, right? So many times collegiate recovery programs have an ally program that's tied to it, right? So trying to build community supports um, to promote recovery and access. The thing is that even though many campuses have them, there's not a lot of communication between. And so people are doing things in isolation. And we know if we look at social movements, we know that a humongous piece of that to making them successful and to creating systemic change is that it can't be isolated to just one specific yeah. area or one specific campus. And so these campus chapters create an opportunity for students to develop supports on their campus and in their community, but also collaborate across campuses to build a, a national coalition of advocates that are really geared towards action and mobilization rather than just creating nice feelings. Yeah. Earlier in the year, we had Susie on to talk about recovery allyship, one of the episodes. So it fits in nicely. I was going to send you this. I got to send you this TikTok too. I don't go on TikTok, but I have people send me TikToks. I feel like that's either on it or you just get sent it by, <laughs> by folks. But it was this woman with a doctorate in psychology and I think found a lot of early support in 12-step programs, but was debunking a little bit of it where yes they're successful but it might not be successful because of the structure of how they're set up but more so around they're the most common groups of people collectively working towards something and i think it's pretty spot on you could yeah. replicate that and i say that as someone in recovery who benefited a lot from it yeah i i think it's i think when like-minded people come together, change occurs. Um, it may not be the particular venue or the particular program, right? I just think sometimes when humans come together in a hive mind, change can happen. And so I think for many people, 12 Steps is that initial place. So they find that community of people who are working towards that same type of change. But we know it's not a perfect fit for everybody. And I think that is part of what Students Recover is really trying to create an option for is that opportunity to really create some options for students to come together and find what it is that works for them to support them in that recovery. Um, whether it be 12 steps or mindfulness or sewing or gaming, whatever it is, whatever those things that are that are recovery supportive, we want to make sure we do more of that and create opportunities for students across the nation um, to really connect and do it in a way that's supportive and that's led by them. Yes, that's perfect segue. Because I was going to say what I've always admired, uh, one of the things I've always admired with you since that famous day you sat next to me in Houston five years ago, whenever it was, is that the proactiveness to get 
individuals who would be the recipients or the directly impacted by certain decisions involved in the decision making truly like authentically without patronizing them or tokenizing them and i'm wondering if you can give some insight on why that's so important and maybe any tips or i don't want to say tips or strategy it sounds like adding a corporate spin to it but just for folks that are not as comfortable or have not had that experience of whether it's involving individuals a lived experience or certain identities you know how to approach that in a appropriate way yeah i think so much of it is really going back to the grassroots sort of nature of organizing and when we do grassroots organizing what we're doing is we are literally coming to the ground and seeing what's there and utilizing those resources. And I work in this recovery space, but I'm not a person in recovery. So that has always really grounded the work I do. And I can have a million great ideas, but those are ideas that it doesn't impact my life in that direct way. So I've always, you know, really focused on, okay, if we're supporting the community, we need to go to the community. The community has the answers. They have the cure. I don't. I can help facilitate but we need to rely on the people who need help to tell us what they need and then help them cultivate that, whatever that looks like. And for, for different populations, it's going to look different. And I think that has been such an important piece of the work is that recognizing that different populations have different needs. And if I'm in, I'm just thinking of some work I did recently, if I'm in rural West Virginia, it may look really different in rural West Virginia than it might in downtown Manhattan. Um, it might look really different in rural West Virginia working with um, a European American population versus a migrant Latine population, right? And so it, it's understanding who you're sitting with, listening to their experiences, and then coming together, right? Because if if I try to if I listen and try to create on my own, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to misstep. And so it's coming together, utilizing the resources that everyone has and moving that agenda forward, right? And so it's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be missteps. But if we generally sit back and center the needs and experiences of those people who are actually having the lived experience, we're going to do a far better job at hitting the mark um, than we do if we... I'm not saying... I'm a person who has a doctorate degree. I'm not saying that all the fancy degrees don't help sometimes. They do, but they're not the answer. It's part of the equation. And I think when we remember that, the people we serve know what they need. We're going to do a far better job at serving those communities. And what do you mean when you said the de the degrees are that the doctorate's not? Not no, cure? Yeah. What do you mean? Exactly? Any, I have Higher education is great. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not disrespecting higher education. I spent a lot of time in school. I get the value of it. But there are things you can't learn from an academic experience. I remember years ago, I was in a, a recovery coach training, and I was the only professional person who was in the training. So I wasn't leading the training. I was taking the training. And I heard from so many of the people I was taking the training with, like, just these horrible experiences they had had with professionals throughout their career. And I, I always just sit back and I, I think, okay, I have this knowledge and that's great, 
but I don't have the lived experience. And so how do we take the knowledge I have as, a, as an academic, utilize the experiences and I don't even know how to say it, like the experiences and the knowledge and the wisdom of the person who has lived experience. How do we take both of those perspectives and bring them together to create something new? Because I think that's when we do it best, right? When we have the understanding of the architecture of creating systems for change, and we have the lived experiences of people who are trying to create the change. I think when we focus one or the other, we miss out. Yeah. Your response prompted like four other questions and I don't even know which one to start with. One, okay, this one I'll give you a minute for. So I'll say this and then jump to another one. I want you to respond to the quote, everyone deserves a space, but not every space is meant for everyone. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. You can give it a minute too. I'll ask you something else if you want or if no, you already. No, I, I, yeah. think, I think that's such an important concept, right? Everyone deserves a space, but we have... If we don't create intentional spaces for different populations, we cause harm. That's the bottom line, yeah. right? I think so often we want to make things universal, and that's not always possible, right? Sometimes we need to drill down and create intentional spaces so people can show up authentically and get their needs met. Because I think sometimes when we create these universal spaces, what we end up doing is replicating systems of harm and oppression. That, that was one of the questions I was going to ask, too, building off that is, for individuals that might not understand, what is the, I, I wouldn't say just like the power and impact, but why is it necessary for not just spaces, but to whether it's services or other opportunities and support carved out for specific identities that have historically either been left out or far worse? So let me just make sure I'm getting the question. Why is it important to have those spaces? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, and beyond just spaces, but yeah, services and opportunities. And yes, I'll just leave it there without (laughs) adding too much more to it. No. So I think it's really important because in American society, we've really intentionally, unintentionally, I, I think it's most of the time unintentional, but I think we center the experience of those with the most privileged identities. And I know that word is a hot button word for many people, but the people who have experiences that are the most common, we'll just call it. Okay. And so when we do that and you don't fit into that most common identity, you have to put a piece of yourself to the side to enter the space, to, to get the support. And sometimes that can work, but oftentimes what that does is it creates compartmentalization of the person And when we're trying to heal, we need to be able to show up as our whole human self being cared for and accepted. And and, and that's, I'm simplifying things. It's very complicated. It's very nuanced. So please don't sit like, people have many different identities. And so it's never going to be perfect or easy. But when we create what we call affinity spaces or spaces where people have similar identities, what we do is we allow for people to show up more authentically And in that authenticity, I think there's more opportunities for engagement, for community, for healing than in a space where where folks feel like they can only bring parts of themselves. Yes. And this is an oversimplified example, but here where I am in in Wisconsin, in the fall, for example, if your Sunday does not gravitate and revolve around church, the Green Bay Packers, 
and beer and cheese, you are it's it could be isolating. Like truly. That is it is very common. And if you just don't fall into one of those those buckets, it can feel some kind of way. And that that's a very minimal example. Right. There's there yeah. spaces that if you're outside of it, you're going to feel marginalized. You're going to feel as an outsider. And when you feel like an outsider, again, it's just harder to connect. It's harder to heal. It's harder to show up authentically as you and get your needs met. Exactly. I wanted to ask about your experience as a nonprofit leader, knowing that because we've both now been executive directors and you currently, me in the past. And what I definitely saw as it ties to this privilege concept is a little bit of the rich get richer in the sense that very influential, strong, powerful nonprofits, and it's not even limited to nonprofits, it's how the system's set up, but they're, the individuals in very influential or powerful positions and leadership roles, typically there's a lot of privilege there, right? They had a lot of money to get there, they had name recognition, they had connections, and in turn, that generally helps them in those roles because people pick up the phone or people answer the emails. And I'm wondering what your experience has been like from that access perspective to try and build something and in, definitely in some ways not having that same privilege and access and power that other individuals and organizations have had. Yes. I grew up solidly lower middle class and I'm Puerto Rican, so a community that's not known to have extreme wealth. And so I knew entering the nonprofit space as an executive director with my background, I was definitely going to have to work harder than your average executive director to make contacts. What I didn't know, and I'm still learning on like the daily, is how much of the money really is earmarked for people's friends. <laughs> and it maybe not, maybe not best friends, but like communities support one another for their own mutual benefit, which is, that's human nature, right? We get that. But it's interesting when navigating in the nonprofit space, even grant, the way grant applications are set up, it's fascinating. You really sometimes don't even know that they exist unless someone in the know, someone in that network hands those opportunities off to you. And so it's it's been a really interesting experience. I have a pretty big network of people um, that I deal with. But getting into the network of people who have the resources to create opportunities financially for students to recover, and I think for many brand new nonprofits, is really challenging. It's, I think we need to be far more intentional about supporting nonprofits that are led by people of color, that are led by disabled folks, LGBTQIA folks who are generally not having the same sort of financial resources or access than the dominant culture. And yeah, it, I just think we need to to depend on those folks who do have access to create some opportunities and open some doors for us because sometimes we, we know how to open doors. We just don't know which door to, to knock on. Yeah, great point. For those tuning in, where could they get involved, learn more, read more, whether it's about your work or kind of some of the stuff you touched on more broadly even? Yep. So they can definitely connect with Students Recover at studentsrecover.org or on most social media platforms. We're on 
Facebook and Instagram. We're on TikTok. We haven't really created any content there yet. And Twitter, again, we're going to definitely be expanding our outreach soon via social media. And then people can always reach out to me at kthejesus at studentsrecover.org. Perfect. And I should probably spell the Jesus because probably I'm just thinking people might not know how to spell that. So it's K-D-E-J-E-S-U-S at studentsrecover.org. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll get it in the episode title description, that that type of stuff as well. Thank you for joining and giving us all this insight and the time today. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you next time.